Hello, this is Nathan Ray, and this is my friend, Gordon Clark. Hey, Gordon, I've had you on the show before, way back in episode 17. We were speaking about hermeneutics, and if anyone wants to know the deeper history as to how we know each other, I highly recommend checking that episode out. In the aftermath of recording that episode and editing it, I thought to myself, you know what? Never again am I going to have this guy on the show because neither of us are really that charismatic. He keeps on switching topics every 15 seconds. He makes it quite difficult to edit this episode. So just never again am I going to have him on the show. But something happened in the last year or so of my life that brought you into more relevance in what I'm doing. And that was your nonstop insistence on shilling the world of cryptocurrency. I remember logging onto Facebook day after day, and you'd be posting these videos, giving unsolicited advice as to what cryptocurrencies that people needed to invest in. You were posting these esoteric memes on the value of cryptocurrency. And eventually, you were just pummeling it so hard that I had to think, okay, maybe maybe it's worth checking out. Or at least that's one reason. But before we go into that, if I might ask, how has God been working in your life as of late, particularly since we last recorded an episode together? Well, I recently discovered an app called Glorify. I love this app. It has three times a time I put into prayer, devotion, devotionals, and worship life. In some ways, I feel like a new believer again. Mostly in the way I feel like I have greater faith now, and that since I've been a Christian for a long time, that that initial excitement that you have when you have like you're a new believer kind of like diminishes over time. I feel like I have that excitement back since I downloaded that app. What makes the app so special? Well, I have ADHD, so I find it kind of hard to, like, structure my time through, like, prayer, devotionals, and worship. Kind of is why I'm not very charismatic. But, yeah, it gamifies those structures, which enables me to actually engage in prayer, devotions, and worship more. Okay. I think in my own life, the way that God has been working since I recorded my last episode, I remember speaking earlier about how it felt like God wasn't working all that much, and that I had to be actively searching for him, actively seeking out a reason for him to be working in my life. But now it's like he's working in my life every single day, or at least almost every single day. And I have so many different stories that I can share. For example, a while back, I was visiting Calgary to volunteer at the Calgary Comic and Entertainment Expo. The actual volunteer experience itself was rather mediocre, but the stuff that I was doing outside of that experience, just wandering around the city, I had a random guy come up to me on the train and ask me if I could pray for him. I don't know how he knew that I was a Christian, but it was something that happened. And when I was praying with him, I think there was this moment of spiritual renewal that was happening within his soul. I got the chance to visit Fairview Baptist Church down in Calgary, which is rather infamous for having its lead pastor be arrested and sent to jail twice for holding services that completely go against the COVID restrictions that are regulated by the government. I had a chance to take part in a service or two from that church, and I got the chance to meet the pastor who was arrested, Tim Stevens. I'm starting to develop connections with people who think the same way as me, people who are on the same page as me. And there's a part of it that's a little bit scary because you don't really know where these people all are when it comes to their spiritual alignment. And that's something that I think is worth considering when it comes to discerning whether it's worth it to pursue these relationships with these people. But at the same time, it's resulted in a lot of interesting, fruitful conversations. And I think that as I go further into the month, as I continue to involve myself in this process, I think the more I'm able to understand that 
certain things that have happened in my life before they're preparing me for times like these where the future is uncertain and we don't know what's going to happen, but all we need to do in order to get through most of it is to just trust in God that he's going to be providing for us. It sounds like your life is the literal walking out of James 1, 2. Basically, it says, consider it joy. My brothers are new encountered trials of many kinds because you may know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Allow perseverance to finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Now, transitioning to the topic on hand, I think when I first heard about cryptocurrency years ago, people were saying that it was just a fad, it was just a scam, it wasn't going to result in anything worthwhile. I remember I was taking an employment skills class back in 2017 to 2018. And the teacher of that class specifically advised me not to get involved in the cryptocurrency market because everything was crashing and burning and it just wasn't worth my investment. And that was advice that ended up being terrible in the long run, but I don't think anyone would have known that at that time. What convinced me about the validity of the cryptocurrency market especially this year, was not just your incessant shilling of the industry, but also back in March, I had the opportunity to travel over to Toronto. And as I was wandering around the city, I came across a convenience store with a cryptocurrency ATM inside. And I thought to myself, okay, if these things are starting to pop up, then this has to be more than a fad. It has to be more than a flash in a pan it's slowly gaining mainstream traction. And if it's getting to that point, then maybe it is worth investing in. But if I might ask, what made you want to get involved in the cryptocurrency industry? Well, even as a small boy, I always wanted to be an investor, but traditional markets benefit the privileged society, more privileged society, a socioeconomic demographic I did not belong to. I grew up in poverty, so it just wasn't available for me. When I heard of a market back in 2016 that was for the people, by the people, I was instantly attracted to it. However, this was back in the Wild West days of scam IPOs, waking up at 5 a.m. on Mondays for John McAfee's pump and dump schemes, and absolutely no regulation. Like nowadays, I don't think anybody's investing in like Tron anymore. Like if they are, the market's definitely not reflecting that. After the first big crash back, as you said, back in 2017, I knew it was only a matter of time before traditional banks and Western governments started to regulate it. Like you can't crush like a $1 trillion industry without like big ton players like wanting to make rules just to make sure we don't go into another recession. And I stayed on knowing regulation would attract institutional investors. I'm not saying it was hard. Like I was hemorrhaging money. Like Bitcoin went from like 20, just hitting 20,000 to like barely, barely holding 5,000. And now it's almost at 60,000 these days, correct? Yeah. And, there's speculation it could go up to 100k by Christmas. Okay. How were you able to learn how to build a successful portfolio? Honestly, just watching YouTube, following Twitter and Telegram accounts. Those will help you identify the trends. And uh, one thing you will want to learn in crypto right away is that the trend is your friend. It is one of the most commonly used terms that are shilled by people that show way more than I do. And I can only wish I could show as much as them. But another thing, you will also need to do your own research. Those things like YouTube and Twitter, they'll help you find a trend, but you need to do your own research. Because what happens on things like Telegram and especially is that people introduce something like a scam coin and you should invest in this and get a whole bunch of people excited for this scam coin. But if you don't do your own research into the project or into like market analysis, you'll lose a lot of money because you didn't do your own research. You trusted the advice of somebody without doing your own. What kind of trends have been recurring over the last couple of years that you want to highlight? 
Well, the most popular one right now, which I don't personally do because honestly, I am too scared to get into it because I do not know what the tax implications are look like in Canada because it is still too new. And I don't think there are technical rules on NTFs right now. NTFs are essentially like stores of value, little pieces of art, cars. I think people are even doing their like house mortgages as NTFs now. And another trend that is super, super crucial for people to get into right now, it's not financial advice, do your own research, but gaming, blockchain gaming, basically companies are building video games based off the blockchain. One thing that in cryptocurrency, Bitcoin will never go down further than 20,000 ever again. We are past early entry into the Bitcoin market. However, in video game based blockchains, we're in the earliest possible stage to be getting into. In traditional markets, like video game industries, like multiple billions of dollars, like we have that taste right now going into it. There's many successful companies coming out over 2020. And the fact that you're getting in early enough now means while you're playing your game, you're getting paid to play your game. Like, could you go on, like, Swotor, Lord of the Rings Online, or whatever other online games you play? Would they pay you to play your, their games? Lord of the Rings Online does have, like, reward coins for playing their game, but it's not really enough to, like, to uh, do that. There are people in video game blockchains that can actually put a career's worth of time into the game and make a career's worth of salary. What kind of video games are on the market that allows for something like that? Vulcan Online, Axie Infinity. I personally have a cryptocurrency invested in Axie Infinity. CryptoKitties was popular for a bit. I don't know if they're popular anymore, but they're basically an NFT game. Basically, the top ones in 2021 would have been Axie Infinity, Crypto Blades, Alien Worlds. Splinter Rooms. Outside of these trends, how are you able to determine what coins to invest in? There are two ways you could do it, and you could even do both of them together. Basically, you could do, you could research market performance, doing like market analysis, which is essentially looking at like the graphs, analyzing like the Japanese candlesticks over like time. You could go back a few years, you could like look at it from like how it traditionally performs in certain months, things like that. Or you could be like a fanboy and like just become like a huge follower of a project, knowing like everything you can about the project you're invested in. I'm not a hodler, which is like somebody that holds coins for a long time because I like a little bit more risk to my investment. So I mostly swing trade altcoins, which are any coin that's not a Bitcoin. And so I don't really research projects as much. I'm mostly uh, doing market performance. I've been in the game for way too long. I've just seen so many coins like rise and fall and like get delisted. So I just don't really want to research a project that's just going to die. What are some infamous examples that you can think of? Coins that rose high and then crashed and burned. A good example of that would have been Mysterium, although the funny thing about Mysterium is they initially had that problem. They rose and then they fell and got delisted off almost all the crypto exchanges. And like last year, they got relisted and I think they got rebranded or something, but they're still Mysterium and they're performing really well. Kind of wish that I got in earlier because it was like trading at zero Satoshis. And I was like, there's no way it's going to go up. And then it went up to like a hundred bucks. That week. I was like, man, I could have like got so many of them and I did nothing. How are you supposed to predict these trends? I don't think you can. There are communities on Facebook, on Telegram, where people will congregate to talk about like various coins and projects 
products that they're excited about. But you have to discern, like, these groups are thousands of people posting, like, thousands of projects, like, pretty much every hour. So you have to discern what's a scam coin and what's not a scam coin. So what I personally do is that I look at what's, like, the most popular and and what's getting pumped up about. And then I'll I'll go on, like, YouTube and listen to what they're talking about, uh, certain coins, and if they're talking about it. And it's in their profiles, and it's a good trend. Okay. Do you know the differences between all of the coins that you're investing in? Do you know what the utilities of the coins are? Like I said, I don't particularly care about projects. I don't get too much into technicals about the differences. But for some of the utilities, Solana is an Ethereum killer. I don't really like Ethereum. So I'm a huge fan of Solana because it's an Ethereum killer. I'm also investing in Cardano for the same reason. It, it is also an Ethereum killer. Basically, an Ethereum killer is anything that will give Ethereum a run for its money that will do pretty much the same things as Ethereum. Ethereum is like a smart contract. It's able to do proof of stake, proof of concept. I believe that uh, Solana is also doing proof of history now too, so that's pretty exciting. But I really like Cardano because, like, its founder, Charles Hoskinson, is a co-founder of Ethereum. So he's uniquely primed to take the role of an Ethereum competitor. Plus Cardano, which is also known as ADA, has been working with nations like Ethiopia before El Salvador. I'm also investing in Polygon. I'm not qualified to speak to it. I just know it's trendy and has historically performed well on my market analysis. The last two projects are Axis and Uniswap. I like Uniswap because it helps with some of the reasons I hate Ethereum, which is like high transactional costs. Just because I don't like a project like Ethereum doesn't mean I don't want to taste it. And Axis, because if you're not at the ground level of blockchain gaming, you should seriously be FOMOing right now. FOMO is fear of missing out. You mentioned high transaction costs for Ethereum. Are there any other reasons why you hate Ethereum? And if you do hate Ethereum, why is it that you recommended that I invest in it? Because Ethereum is really good if you are a long-term holder of cryptocurrency, not a short-term investor like I am. If you're going to be trading all the time, the transactional costs are actually going to cause you to lose money, not make money. But if you hold it and you're not spending it, you're not losing it. You're just holding it as a store of value. Okay, so I think there's a difference in philosophy between our two different trading styles because you're someone who's always trading probably every day and I'm someone who's more like, I'm going to dollar cost average my way up this market and I'm going to just hold these coins for as long as possible until I have to sell them in case all of my other funds run out. Exactly. Like I have a higher risk tolerance than you, so and you prefer safer risk. So yeah, there's definitely a difference in philosophy, that's for sure. Why do you think we have that difference in risk? In trading psychology, everybody has like this system that works for them. It's called like an edge. Basically, when you're trading, whether it's long term or short term, you're looking for that thing that will make you the money that you're the most comfortable with because like if you're not working in a system that will make that you're comfortable with you're bound to make more mistakes and so if you have a higher risk you want to make more mistakes because like you believe that what you risk will like pay off more than you lose but if you don't have that higher risk tolerance you're not really risking it because you like you're pretty much guaranteed the principle and your investment over time is pretty much the cherry on top of the ice cream. We were talking earlier about this bet that I wanted to make where I wanted to take $6,000 out of my tuition fund and invest it into Bitcoin. And you recommended against that. I think on my end, that would have been a very risky move to do. It might have been one that would have paid off by the time I needed to take that money out for tuition purposes. And so if you're someone who is more willing to tolerate high risk behavior, 
why is it that you were willing to tell me, no, Nathan, this is a bad idea. This isn't necessarily a path that you should be pursuing. Number one, that was not financial advice. It was a suggestion and he did his own research and like weighed his own decisions. Just want to put that out there in case somebody wants to like have a problem with that. Now, basically, a person that does not have high risk, even a person that does have high risk, should not risk like a guaranteed thing that they have that's dedicated for a goal like school. If you want to go to school and you have the money, the money should go to the school. It's like gambling. Like they always say that never risk more than you're willing to lose. Like, are you willing to lose a goal of school for Bitcoin? Some people might say yes, but other people could actually like lose that money and lose both the Bitcoin and the school. Like I wouldn't want that for you or myself. Even if Bitcoin were to go up to $100,000 in value within the next year. Yeah, but are you really willing to, like, bank that? That's the question. Like, what happens if, like, we have a black swan event? And what's happening because of Biden's issue with raising the debt ceiling in the U.S. when compounded with China's Evergrande problems potentially causes a technical recession and many people that are able to invest no longer have the ability to invest. What if like inflation causes what we're able to invest to lose its purchase? Like, we just don't know how world events are going to impact currency. And we have to be responsible, realistic, not looking at everything with the rose-colored glasses of a Doge fan. Of, Everything's going to be awesome. Just buy more Doge. Like we gotta, we got to be responsible and we got to know the risks. Okay, so what you're saying is that if a recession were to occur, and even if that meant that the value of the U.S. dollar were to drop dramatically, then that would mean there would be less people who would be able to invest on the market. And because there are less people who are investing on the market, that means the value of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, Ethereum would actually go down. It would not rise. Is that what you're saying? It's possible, yes. Okay. However, I also want to make a distinction. Cryptocurrency has been proven to be a safe hedge against inflation, which the U.S. dollar is currently experiencing. The prices, we may lose some purchasing power, but big players like institutional buy-in from Elon Musk, for example, Grayscale, they will look at those opportunities as good times to buy because they will want to buy the dip at that time. And if they plug in enough money, it could prove a safe hedge against inflation for those companies. And if enough people see that those companies are essentially saving the project, in particular Bitcoin and Ethereum, it could see a temporary dip in prices and then it will go back up. People are saying that it's still worth investing in. I think what will be a huge difference maker is if people decide to invest in that over traditional things like GICs and other things to like put money back into the economy. So people are putting money back into like the crypto space and not their own economies. Well, then you know that people no longer believe in the government. They believe in the people. Yeah. What's the biggest mistake that you've made in your crypto investing? My biggest loss was around 5,000 USD, arbitraging between Bitrix and a Russian exchange I won't mention because they are way better now than they used to be and I don't want to discourage their growth. What exactly happened there? Well, basically, arbitraging is when one exchange is selling it for a low price and another exchange is willing to buy it and pay you a bigger price than what you paid for. So you're actually making more money. And so I sent it from my Bitcoin wallet on Bitrix to another wallet on an exchange, the exchange which I won't mention their name because they actually did get a lot better. And I like them now. Back then I was really angry by that because $5,000 was a lot at that time for me. 
and this was like right when the markets crashed so like i was already out by a lot of money because like the profits went down so yeah i think i only have like out of like my almost 11 and then the markets went down oh, i figured as much but like i pretty much only had like 400 bucks left in my wallet <laughs> at the end of the day and so yeah i sent it to the exchange and the exchange didn't recognize that i sent the money so it's floating in space somewhere. Oh, that's so stupid and unfortunate. So after that experience, then like what made you still want to commit to this as a, a side hustle? Mostly because I, I believed in, uh, in it and I wasn't really experienced in arbitrage yet. So I knew that I was very capable of making a mistake. And after that, I don't think I arbitraged ever again. So it just wasn't a strategy that I, I wanted to put on my boat because it stung. I only had like $400 left. <laughs> but yeah, I knew that the industry was worth the constant investment in and it wasn't hard to make money with the right strategies. Where I went wrong was my problem of adding another strategy that didn't work for me because I didn't know what I was doing. It wasn't the exchanges problem. It wasn't cryptocurrencies problem that was like on me because i wasn't responsible with my strategy i think for myself that doesn't really compare to the biggest mistake that i've made in my own crypto investing career i don't even have five thousand dollars in my wallet at the moment it's more like almost three thousand i guess you could say it fluctuates from day to day but i think the biggest mistake that i've made and i'm not blaming you when i say this but recently the price of Cardano, it shot up by like 60 cents. And I know from my research in stock market psychology that anytime there's a big gain in the market, there's typically a big crash that soon follows. And so I was wondering, wow, what's going to happen here? When's the price of Cardano going to crash again? And we talked about this and you recommended that I sell off the uh, available Cardano that I had because half of it was locked away in staking. And so I did. And the price kept going up by 90 cents. I know. It's, I was like hard too because like I sold too like as soon as we talked about it because I was like, there's no way it's not going to crash. I thought it was like doing the same thing as Dogecoin because Dogecoin was like the market was like being artificially manipulated by people being super excited about it. So like, you know what? It's just going to crash because that's essentially a pump and dump. So I'm going to stop. And you asked, and I was like, well, I don't know. Like, do you think this is going to crash? And like, we both agreed that it, it, it might crash. And then it went up and we both lost money. But like the good thing with you is like, you, you're able to stake yours. My, I was able to unstake mine right away in someone. So like my stake means nothing. And in hindsight, I'm actually glad that most of my Cardano was staked because if it wasn't, then I probably would have made the even more stupid decision of selling it all selling. and losing a ton more money in the process. And granted, I still lost money because the price still went down. And I had to pay for exchange fees and went through a massive headache involving all of that. But the good news is that I think I learned an alternative strategy that might be more viable in the future is that when a coin that I have possession of, it's shooting straight up like by massive amounts, by like I, I think more than 20% in a single day, then instead of selling the coin, Perhaps it's better to just convert it to Bitcoin. You didn't do that? Not at first. Do you do stop losses? I don't know what you're talking about. Basically, a stop loss is like you go on your exchange and instead of selling at the market value it's at now, you put it up at a much higher number, which you think it could potentially sell at. Actually, that's not a stop loss. Basically, it determines your exit position, which is the price you want to sell at. And... Let's say instead of the market value was at then, you think it could go much higher. You put the sell at that position. That way you can like have your stop loss being slightly lower than the current market position. 
we can also have a stop gain, which could potentially sell it at a much higher value without you having to watch the markets all the time. I didn't realize that was an option. And I think in the aftermath of recording this episode, you're probably going to need to teach me how to do that. What do you think is your biggest success? Learning trading psychology, 100%. Like I learned that back in 2020, and it has averaged me 5% a week in earnings, which is like way more than my bank. I'm lucky if I could get 1% annually. Basically, one thing I have been learning in trading psychology, there's a this really good podcast, which I definitely recommend to you and all your listeners. It's called Chat with Traders. They talk about all the tips and tricks in the game, like what works for them. And there's this concept called trade journaling. I also have a trading journal. You can buy it on Amazon. It's pretty cheap. Basically, what it does is like you record what you bought, the reason you bought it, your stop loss, the market conditions, and performance and outcomes. You record it, the positive and the negative. What were you feeling? Was it positive? What was the performance? Do you feel anything negative behind? And then over time, you're actually able to identify like how your emotions cause you to like make mistakes and how to correct them. What's interesting though is I think largely when I'm investing in cryptocurrency, I don't feel anything. That's really lucky. There are times when I like I'll get angry and revenge trade. I can understand what that phrase means, but please. Please, please explain it. Basically, what a revenge trade is, is when you take a loss, you get really angry and you risk more than you wanted to on another investment, which will also take a loss, meaning you took two losses instead of just like calming down and not doing anything. And why would you do that? Because sometimes I get really excited about an investment and it's performing really well in all the markets and then we get like a market correction or something and then I lose. Which you can't always predict a market correction, which is basically the stabilization of market prices across all the different exchanges. Unlike a traditional stock exchange, which is all the same price, cryptocurrencies being that they're not based off the u.s dollar can have their own prices at times i think for myself part of the reason why i'm not emotionally invested in trading as much as you are is because back in 2019 i read the book the intelligent investor by benjamin graham and in it he was laying out all these principles for getting involved in a stock market And he was talking about how when stocks were going down, that was the best time to invest. When stocks were going up, that was the best time to be holding back. And if you can learn to control your emotions and not make hasty decisions just because your stock goes down and it makes you want to sell it, or your stock goes up and it makes you want to pump even more money into it then it's going to work out better for you over the long term than if you were more emotionally invested in this. And I think the biggest test for me for that happening very shortly after I started investing in cryptocurrency, Elon Musk announced that Tesla was no longer going to be taking Bitcoins as payment for their products. And because of that, the market went down on all coins. And I lost, I think, about $100. Did you get it back? I got it back, yes. And right now I'm in this position where I can lose maybe $100 in a day. I can lose $400 in over a week. And I can just be like, okay, this is fine. This isn't what I'm totally reliant upon. This is meant to be more of a long-term investment for me. And so as long as I'm willing to take the long-term view in mind, then it's probably going to be working out. Would you say that Musk almost crashing the Bitcoin, do you think that has helped your trading psychology now that China's thought about cryptocurrency being something that should be made illegal in China right now? Absolutely, yes. Because then the price of Bitcoin is going to go down. The price of every other coin on the market is also probably going to go down. 
And that's going to give me more incentive to just continue investing in them because now I'm buying those coins at a discount. And over the long term, I am going to get my profits back eventually. Even with Cardano, I don't know when it's going to get back to a place where it's trading for $3.70 on the market. They're estimating two years. Okay. In two years, then it's going to work out. I just need to be willing to wait in the long term. Now let's transition to what you wanted to talk about when you came to me with this idea for the episode. We've talked about trading strategies and trends, and we've also talked a little bit about how cryptocurrencies are slowly becoming mainstream. There's a very specific market that you want to see this becoming mainstream in, and I want to hear what you have to say about that. All right. I actually wrote a good like, couple speeches on this. Basically, it will be three parts. They're just a couple paragraphs, but nothing too long. Basically, I want to explain the store value. Can churches as a nonprofit have a store value? And how we can hypothetically replace how we fund missions. I'm a huge believer that if there's like a financial opportunity, that God gave us that financial opportunity. Because... Nothing that we have on this earth is ours, it is God's. Basically, a store value. When Iran launched ballistic missiles at America back in 2020, before all the COVID stuff, and that was probably the worst thing that happened in 2020 at that point, what we saw was predictable. A downtrend in stocks and an uptrend in reliable store values. Now, reliable store values are scarcity items, such as gold and silver, which will hold their value instead of like stocks, which just won't hold their value. And why people do this is when the market is unsafe. And why the market was unsafe, we see a, a country like Iran shoot a missile at an American base, which was speculatory that since Donald Trump was president at the time, America and Canada and all the other allies could have gone to war at that point. Now, praise be to God that the former president Donald Trump didn't actually go to war, but the market was so afraid. And what happened was there was a downtrend in stocks and uptrend in gold and silver. But what no one expected, and for the first time in economic history, not only did the price of Bitcoin go up with other reliable stores of value, but it outperformed gold. Some people will argue that it's not worth anything because it's not transactional and not backed by anything. But companies like Crypto.com and BlockFi have made it a transaction. Crypto.com is the first fintech company to meet Canadian banking laws in context to the services it offers. As for not backed by anything, that is laughable. Because the fiat dollar has not been backed by anything since 1933, when then-President Roosevelt ended the gold standard for fiat, made more complicated in 1971, when gold became an unfixed price commodity under then-President Nixon. So fiat has had the same not-being-backed problem for 88 years. Can churches have a store value? Some churches can be scared to hold stores of value because are they not not for profits canada charity law not only says that they can but it can be stored into something called an endowment fund basically most churches have very specific rules they have to follow on how they use the money they are given but an endowment fund is essentially someone else having specific rules that they need to follow to ensure a not-for-profit like a church has access to the profit of the investment, they just can't use the principle. Now, the principle is the money that the person who gave the investment to the church has invested in the market currently. Basically, the church is allowed access to the profit, not the principle. So over time, if the person that gave the investment doesn't end that, or the market doesn't lose the principle altogether, the church can keep making money off the profit over time. Not only do tax agencies see it as a good way to have a reserve, now a reserve fund is like a rainy day funds for a nonprofit that you can like have in case like you're not bringing in enough money to like your church. Because let's say 
we mentioned before, things like recessions, you might have people in the church not being able to tithe as much as they used to, or not being able to, not having the willingness to invest. And there's this whole movement right now that Christians don't think that new covenant believers should be investing in the beginning or not investing in tithing, which I don't really want to get into. But basically, there's a need in a church to have money, and they have rules for money. Basically, if you bring in the endowment fund, when the church isn't making as much money, and you can have your reserve to help continue to fund the church when you could be going through a bad financial season. <sighs> that was a bit complicated, and I'll be happy to like answer questions based on that. I myself had to like read like so much into this, and that was like the best way I can summarize it. The actual laws are like pages and pages long. What made you so passionate about this particular subject? Missions. Like when you consider that the current amount of spending we put into missions as as 27 million local churches worldwide is 32 billion dollars into missions now i was thinking about this one day there are cryptocurrencies such as neo people that have been in cryptocurrency a long time know the term neo it's a compounding coin and it pays a dividend called neo gas now, in Genesis 1.28, it says, be fruitful and multiply. Obviously, it's talking about breeding post-flood, but many people that are religious investors will use it uh, and apply it to other, other areas of their lives, their business, pretty much anything that you could be fruitful and multiply. Because like it's just a good principle to apply to. So let's say the current market price at NEO, every church buys one for $50 a week for a year. Missionaries will have access to $64,800,000,000. That's double. That's double the $32 billion. Like, we have the opportunity to spend less and fund more. Like, how is spending less and funding more not good financial stewardship? And how are we not applying to this to other ministries, not just missions? Well, I think, for one, the people who are running the churches that are in charge of these missionary endeavors, they don't necessarily understand the cryptocurrency market. As you were talking earlier, all churches are nonprofits. And so for them, there might be this fear or worry that if we take this investment then if it goes up, we might have to pay tax on it. And if it goes down, then we might just end up losing money on it. I also think that for better or for worse, missionary fundraising, it's seen as traditionally solid. It's something that has worked in the past, and therefore it's going to work in the future. My own experiences with fundraising, I've found it very difficult to get other people invested in donating their money unless the cause is seen to be really good. And to be honest, if I'm going to be going on more missionary trips, then I want to be able to fund them myself. I want to be able to fund them with my own assets. I don't really want to have to go to other people and say, hey, give me $20 so that I can get enough money to hop on a plane to Nicaragua or elsewhere in Ethiopia, just so that I can do missionary work for two weeks. I definitely agree with that. Like, there is definitely like a, a lack of willingness in many church circles to like be funding missions to begin with. And like a lot of churches are like, they're like moving towards like, you have to go to school to be a missionary. You have to give me all these requirements to be a missionary. Like, they don't believe what they You can't, like, just have a calling and, like, they send you out anymore. So, like, we have this traditional way things have been aren't traditional because we could have someone like Paul in the Bible ask the Romans he never met for money and he would give him that money. But, like, nowadays... We would expect Paul to have like a degree from a Bible college or a seminary, at least like a giant command of like two systematic theology textbooks and like 
how to run it like a community organization knowledge all these different things that Paul didn't have you know we think we can keep the traditional model going but we don't practice a traditional model yeah I think when you're saying tradition you're meaning tradition from scriptures but when I'm saying tradition I'm talking about practices and habits that have slowly developed over the last 300 years. You wouldn't consider them developing out of scripture? Well, I know that Paul, he was dependent on assistance, financial assistance from other members of the church. And so that is something that I see as biblical. And not everyone is going to have $3,000 on hand to just slap down and pay for a trip out of the country But I I do think that there's both a more efficient way of raising those funds, of utilizing those funds. And at the same time, it's not being done in a way that is entirely reflected within the scripture, which I think you could say about a whole lot of other church practices as well. Yeah, but that's why I think that like cryptocurrency could be a a good alternative to the funding because... Essentially, there's 27 million churches that are contributing $32 billion towards missions. What are you doing to, I guess, lead the movement towards churches accepting cryptocurrency as an option? And do you know of any churches that are accepting cryptocurrency as an option? Churches in Switzerland, which have their historical roots in the great reformer Zwingli, He's traditionally considered one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation. Churches associated with that movement currently in Switzerland are accepting payments in cryptocurrency, and they've been accepting ties since 2016, before it was even considered transaction, before the market crash back in 2017. Right now, there's churches that you and I have attended together that use Tithely, and Tithely has the resources necessary to enable churches to collect tithes in cryptocurrency. So how exactly are you supposed to tithe cryptocurrency when the value of the coins are always changing? The price of the coins are always changing, but the price of the dollar is always going to be average too. Because what happens is, You'll be able to pay it in cryptocurrency, but Tidely will convert the BTC or the Ethereum. Okay. And so if, say, you decide to donate 0.01 Bitcoin, then Tidely is going to automatically take that amount and convert it to whatever currency it's servicing the church in, and the church will receive that amount of money, correct? I, that's to the best of my knowledge, that's correct. You also have the ability to store it in the cryptocurrency as well, if you didn't want to convert. Okay. Have you spoken to any churches here in Edmonton about potentially adopting cryptocurrency as a tithing option? No, I've recently gotten into this. I think we started talking about just a few months ago, right? Like in, I want to say June. So, like, I've mostly been waiting for, like, less restrictions in churches so that I can't just show up to churches these days. And the message of let's give Jesus our money in digital aspect, digital form. Well, can you write an email to the pastor and say, hey, I want to have a meeting with you about this, maybe over Zoom? I've been doing that. I'm doing a draft. I'm going to test it out with Pastor Sam and Caleb and see if what they think of it before I test it out. I I don't really want to like go in it without getting feedback because like I could like make a lot of mistakes and do damage to that cause. So I want to like talk to people that we both know that have a good heart and can give good feedback. Okay, I don't know if Pastor Sam from Hybrid Church if he has any experience investing in cryptocurrency. He does invest, I know that for a fact. Okay, so then at the very least, you'll have someone who knows what you're talking about. I also know that Hybrid Church, it's a church that is mostly comprised of 20-something young adults, people who aren't making a whole lot of money, who don't necessarily have the savings to invest in cryptocurrency. 
do you think that might be a potential issue when it comes to having a, a church like hybrid adopt cryptocurrency as a tithing option? No, I don't think so because like we're relatively young still and I don't think that we're always the most secure in our finances. But how do you like get financial security if you're not like learning the process, if you're not doing the process? Like one thing that you learn from listening to people like Dave Ramsey, reading like good finance books is that like before you pay anyone else, like you should be paying your tithes and you should be paying yourself. And there's good lessons to learn. And obviously we don't want churches to convince some people that they should be rich because that's how you get into the prosperity gospel. But having people like Pastor Sam and like Caleb who have ministry experience, who have a, a good heart, they'd be able to hear a, a pitch and they don't have to agree to it or even subscribe to it. They'd be able to give me feedback to see if the goal is like worthwhile. And then if it is worthwhile, then I could go talk to other churches that are part of the Titan network. Yeah, and I think at the very least, I know that Pastor Sam has connections all around the city of Edmonton. He has pastoral connections outside of Edmonton as well. And so even if he says it's probably not for us, It can be for other people. You know, even though I said to myself once, never again will I have Gordon Clark on the show because it just results in a frustrating episode to edit. I'm really glad that we had this conversation. And I think I want to have you back on for another episode later on more quickly. I don't know when that's going to be or what that's going to look like, but I do hope to see you back soon. Yeah, Nathan did tell me after the last podcast that I need to like formulate my thoughts better. I hope that I was able to reflect that at least four hours of notes into this podcast like today. So, And thank you for coming prepared and I hope to see you again. See you guys. This has been Because We're Not the Same, a podcast hosted, produced, and edited by Nathan Raymond Ray with special guest Gordon Clark. To listen to more episodes, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Verbal, iHeartRadio, or Podbean. You can also visit our Facebook page or our website, bwntscast.wordpress.com. If you're interested in coming on the show as a guest, feel free to reach out to us, and we'll see about having you on. Thank you for listening.